So if you've got your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the ninth chapter of Amos. And this morning, we will finish our series of studies through this minor prophet. Amos has been a challenging book, but I can't think of a more appropriate book for our times. And the emphasis throughout this book has been God and his divine justice. He intends for people to be true and just in their dealings with one another. And that was something that was not happening in the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, the righteousness of God is intended to be brought to bear upon human relationships, but uh, there was inhumanity being shown in the northern kingdom. There was a thin veneer of religion. It was a time of material prosperity, and there was a hypocritical religious whitewash that kind of coated it all. And God sent the prophet Amos from Judah into the northern kingdom of Israel with this message of coming judgment, warning God's people that unless they repented of their sin and returned in faith to the Lord, that judgment would indeed come. Now, in the last three chapters of Amos, we've seen how really it involves a series of five visions that God gave to the prophet, uh, the last of which is here in this ninth chapter. And it's not a vision of something here in chapter 9, but rather it's a vision of someone. And Amos says in verse 1 that I saw the Lord standing beside the altar. So he's shown a vision of the Lord standing by the counterfeit altar of Bethel. And even though an altar was a place where mercy was intended to be sought, God's not standing over the altar in his mercy but he's standing over it in an act of his divine judgment. And as an emblem of counterfeit religion, a false religious system, this counterfeit altar in Bethel was to be judged as such. And in many ways, it served as a fitting illustration of the superficial religion that masked Israel's hypocrisy. And through the prophet Amos, God is declaring to his people that their religious activity would not be a sufficient cover in the day that his judgment was poured out. And so what I want you to see as we come to the end of chapter 9 is that the prophet's message concludes with an emphasis on a bright future. Now let me tell you, Amos is different from so many of the other Old Testament prophets because Oftentimes, the other Old Testament prophets, uh, they would warn of judgment, but interspersed throughout their message would be glimmers of future hope. And so there would be a back and forth between an emphasis on judgment and an emphasis on hope and the future. Well, Amos is different in that for nine straight chapters, he's not let his foot up off the gas as far as coming judgment was concerned. There hasn't really been a glimmer of hope offered anywhere in the book until we come to the final verses here in chapter 9. Because even though judgment was a reality, God says through Amos that he will not completely destroy his people. By means of his sovereignty, he would fulfill the promises that he made to establish an everlasting kingdom. And ultimately, God's word points forward to the dawning of a new day, one in which the counterfeit would be replaced with what is real, the corrupt would be replaced with what is genuine, and the evil of man's fallen kingdom is replaced 
with the glory of the kingdom of God. So Amos chapter 9, I want to begin reading there in verse number 8. And the Bible says, Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say, disaster shall not overtake or meet us. In that day, now listen to this, God says, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who were called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. And they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. And I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Isn't that just a fitting, hopeful conclusion to these nine chapters of the prophet Amos? I want to speak from this subject this morning, the dawning of a new day. Because here in these closing verses, that's exactly what the prophet is describing, the dawning of a new day. You know, the right to rule as king has often been the occasion of bitter conflicts down throughout history. And very often, brother has fought brother in order to wear the crown forcing members of the royal family and citizens of the realm to choose sides as to who is the king. And we've already seen in our study of Amos that the nation was divided and had been for a long time. There was the southern kingdom of Judah with a descendant of David ruling in Jerusalem. Then there was the northern kingdom of Israel under the reign of King Jeroboam. But how could the kingdom of God ever be established under such circumstances of division? I mean, after all, that's what God had promised. When David was king over all of Israel, uh, God had made an everlasting covenant with David, stating that he would establish his throne by means of his offspring. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God said to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your seed after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So that's the promise that God had made to David. That's the promise that God had made to Israel. And the covenant was that David would always have a descendant ruling over an everlasting kingdom on the throne of Israel. So if his throne were to be forever, his kingdom would be forever. 
And yet, with the, the death of Solomon, David's son, the kingdom was divided. It was torn into two. Judah in the south was ruled by the Davidic line of kings. Israel in the north was ruled by a variety of dynasties. And so this great kingdom that David had ruled became weakened by division, infighting, conflict, war. And the United Kingdom that Israel once that was once ruled by David appeared to be no more. And so Amos is reassuring the people of God here, the faithful among God's people, that God had not forgotten his promise to David. And he says that the dawning of a new day was just beyond the horizon. God is going to have to deal with sin. He's going to judge the unbelieving. But there is a new day beyond the horizon. God will not forget his promises. He will not go back on his word. So what exactly is involved in the coming of this new day that God assures his people of? What will God do in order to accomplish it? Well, you'll notice in these verses there's a few things involved. Number one, God's preservation of a remnant. God is saying through the prophet here that he's going to preserve a faithful remnant among Israel. There's a pronouncement of judgment here. Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and God says, I will destroy the sinful kingdom from the surface of the ground. And sinful kingdom there refers to what the northern kingdom had become due to their unbelief, due to their persistent sin, due to their refusal to repent and believe God. God's eyes are upon the sinful kingdom, and he will bring it to ruin. That's a pronouncement of judgment there. Uh, verse 10, all the sinners of my people shall die by the sword. At first glance, someone might say, well, that pretty much sums up everyone. All the sinners of my people shall die. The Scripture says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. But notice there in verse 10, God is clearly making a distinction. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say disaster shall not overtake or meet us. In other words, this is the unbelieving of Israel. Uh, this represents those who were smug in their complacency, those who in their pride refused to repent of their sin and come to faith in God. Those who kept on wanting to hide behind their superficial religion that the prophet has cried out against for nine chapters. These God would purge from Israel. These are the sinners who refuse to repent and believe God's word. And so in that way, God would bring to ruin the sinful kingdom of man, which, by the way, God is always committed to bring to ruin the sinful kingdom of man. Lest you get discouraged and lest you grow weary when you see corruption in high places, let me just remind you of the truth of this passage here. God's eyes are always upon the sinful kingdoms of man, and God in his integrity and in his divine justice is committed to bring the sinful kingdom of man to ruin and establish his own rule. And that's what we're being told here at the end of Amos. So there's a pronouncement of judgment that's followed up by a process, the process by which God is going to preserve a remnant of people for himself. 
His eyes are on the sinful kingdom of man. He will bring it to ruin. But notice he says there at the end of verse 8, except I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. So by means of his grace, God will preserve a remnant for himself. And how exactly is it that he would do this? Well, verse 9, he says, I will command and shake the house of Israel among the nations just as one shakes with a sieve and no pebble shall fall to the earth. In other words, God says that he's going to use a sifting process. He's going to sift out the faults. He's going to refine that which is true. He's going to preserve a faithful remnant for himself. Now, here's something that we may forget. When judgment is being cried out against the sinful kingdom there in the north, there was a faithful remnant of God's people who were serving him under such difficult, dark circumstances. You remember the prophet Elijah? Elijah felt like he was the only one who was serving God. Ahab and Jezebel had introduced Baal worship throughout the entire uh, northern kingdom. And uh, Ahab, in a moment of discouragement, even depression, says to the Lord, God, I'm the only one who's serving you. They've, they've slaughtered your prophets. Nobody's serving you. And, you know, God comes along Side the weary prophet and says, let me just remind you of something, Elijah. <laughs> I have kept for myself 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You don't know who they are. I know who they are. The same thing is true in Israel or in Amos's day in Israel. There's a faithful remnant that God is going to preserve for himself. God's going to burn up the chaff He's going to sift out the good wheat, the good kernels of grain from the chaff, and he'll remove that which is false. Now, here's the thing. You look at this, and you need to keep in mind an application for us as the church. And what we find here at the end of Amos really is a reminder that you and I should always be found in a place of repentance and faith before God. Always turning from sin that clings so easily to us and always looking in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. So where there have been departures in your life, whether it be doctrinal, whether it be practical, where there have been relational breakdowns in your life, stubborn habits that seem to persist in your life, what do we do? We surrender in repentance and faith to the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel every day. Repentance is not just a one-time thing by which you come to faith in Jesus, you repented of your sins. That's certainly true. To come to Jesus, you've got to repent of your sins. But repentance is daily for the child of God. Colossians chapter 2 says, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. How did you receive Christ as your Lord? Through repentance and faith. So you receive him as your Savior through repentance and faith. And the Bible says you're to walk every day of your life as a believer in repentance and faith. That's how the people of God live even when the rest of the world seems to be spiraling into chaos. We live with confident faith in a God who saved us, a God who will carry out his kingdom purposes. And so God's going to preserve this faithful remnant of people for himself. This was something that the faithful in Israel could cling to when God's sifting process would take place there in the nation. 
So God's preservation of a remnant. Now, there's a second thing here that I want you to see, and it's this. Notice God's plan for the future. Here at the end of the book, God is giving his people some insight as far as his plan is concerned for their future. And you'll notice that it's a plan that involved a coming king as well as a restored kingdom. God says, in that day, I will raise up the booth or the tent, the tabernacle of David that is fallen. God says, I will repair its breaches. I'll raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. So the Lord himself would work in such a way by which he would restore the house of David. He's going to see to it that David has a son who is seated on the throne of the kingdom. And he will raise up the ruins. He will rebuild it as in the days of old. So there will be a new king who by the promise of God is going to sit upon the throne of David forever and ever. The kingdom that had been divided will be restored and reunited under the reign of God's king. This is something that the prophet Ezekiel foretold in Ezekiel 37 where God speaks and says, I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. One king shall be over them all and they shall be no longer two nations, no longer divided into two kingdoms. So God's going to use this sifting process. Through all of it, he's going to preserve a remnant for himself, but God's going to work in such a way when he's going to reunite the divided kingdom, but it's going to be united under his king that he himself places upon the throne. That is his plan for the future. And verse 12 says that this coming kingdom is going to include the remnant of Edom and all the nations who were called by my name. Remnant of Edom. Uh, what's this referring to? Edom represented the oldest of God's, the enemies of God's people. So, so here's what God is saying here. Even the most vigorous opposition against the people of God, God's going to overthrow it. And they're going to be people from within all nations, all languages, all people groups who were going to bow the knee to Israel's king. That's what God is saying here. So it doesn't stop with Edom, but it spreads outward to include all the nations who were called by God's own name. Now, isn't that an interesting statement there? Someone says, well, I thought that Israel was the only nation called by God's name. Well, look at what God is saying here. This is a reference to the fact that God's global purpose involves saving a people for himself from every nation on earth, and that purpose ultimately is going to be successful. Just like redeemed Israel, these nations will belong to the king because he will have purchased them for himself. You know, John writes about this in Revelation chapter 11 when he says that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And so Amos is given a glimpse of this future kingdom. Isn't that an amazing thing? Uh, the only other place where this passage in Amos is referenced is in, is in Acts chapter 15. There at the Jerusalem Council, uh, it came together over the issue of Gentiles that were being included in the church. 
There were some who had been saying that Gentiles from these other nations who were turning to God, they needed to become Jews in order to become Christians. But Peter and James and the other apostles addressed this issue, and in verse 13 of Acts 15, James replies to to everybody who's there. He says, brethren, listen to me. Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all Gentiles who were called by my name. So the apostles look back into the Old Testament at this promise that God makes through the prophet Amos, and they see all of these Gentiles who are coming to faith in Jesus Christ uh, as the church is expanding from Jerusalem and into other, the uttermost parts of the earth, and they see God at work fulfilling this promise that he's made here in Amos chapter 9. So this prophetic passage began to be fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's being fulfilled presently as people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ, God's king. Listen to me. People from every nation, from every tribe, from every tongue. And you know what? You won't hear about this from Fox News. You won't hear about this from CNN. You won't hear the uh, Newsmax report on any of this. You won't see a whole lot of this in your social media feed, but make no mistake about it. It's the most important thing to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It's the most important thing right now to the God of the universe. People who are coming to faith from every nation, every tribe, every language group on earth who are coming in faith to the King of Kings. That's what's happening right now all around the world. That's what the enemy is fighting against. You want to know why there's so much hostility in the kingdoms of man? It's because the kingdoms of man are under the operation and rule of the evil one. And he constantly wants to stir up conflict and opposition to God's kingdom agenda. But let me tell you something, folks. Nothing is going to keep the King of kings and the Lord of lords from establishing his kingdom upon the earth. And that's a promise. That's a fact. So what began to be fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ will ultimately be fulfilled when Jesus returns in glory to establish his kingdom upon the earth. And then all of Israel will turn to him in faith during the coming tribulation. Even though the church has been grafted into Israel, Gentiles from the nations have been grafted in, the church has not replaced Israel. And the Apostle Paul's clear about that in the 11th chapter of Romans. He says, God's not rejected his people. I don't have time to get into that, but Romans 11 11 says, did they stumble in order that they may fall? What's he talking about? He's talking about Israel's unbelief, the unbelief that Amos is confronting. More specifically, the unbelief that rejected Jesus. So did they stumble in order that they might fall, as in permanently? Paul says, by no means, but rather through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. 
And if their trespass means riches for the world, if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? And Paul goes on in that passage to talk about how the unbelieving branches were broken off so that Gentile branches could be grafted in. And now a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of Gentiles, the Gentiles has come in. The times of the Gentiles. Someone says, well, when did that time begin? Well, I believe that the times of the Gentiles began in 586 when the forces of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army destroyed the temple, destroyed Jerusalem, and really from 586 B.C. on, foreign nations and powers controlled the city of Jerusalem. Things remained that way even after a remnant returned from captivity. Empires such as, such as uh, Greece, Rome. Rome was the occupying, uh, occupying power during the days in which Jesus, his ministry, the early church. In 70 AD, Rome completely ransacked and destroyed the city of Jerusalem, destroyed the temple from there on top of the Temple Mount. And you know what's interesting? Things remained that way throughout the majority of the last 2,000 years. And in the 1920s, roughly 25,000 Jews, that's all there were living in what we would call the Holy Land. But something began happening, I believe, on God's prophetic calendar. In 1948, after um, all the events of World War II, all that had transpired, after the Nazi Holocaust, it's an amazing thing to me that Israel as a nation was born in a day. And in 1948, the modern nation state of Israel came into existence. And in 1967, the Jews regained control of the city of Jerusalem for the first time that the Jews were in control of the city of Jerusalem going all the way back to 586 B.C. And if that's not amazing, in 2017, it was formally recognized by the, super, the largest superpower, most powerful superpower on earth, that Jerusalem is indeed the eternal capital, a Jewish capital. Is this all pure coincidence? I don't believe it is. I believe that it's evidence, folks, that we're living in the last of the last days. And so someone says, well, what's going to happen as far as God's plan for the future is concerned? Listen to me. We're, we're getting extreme. Do you know that right now, right now, almost half of the world's population of Jews are living in Israel? Close to half. It's a remarkable thing. How just 100 years ago, they were less than 25,000. Now, you're talking millions. Upwards of seven, seven and a half million. I mean, it's an amazing thing. But you see, here's what the Scripture says is going to happen in the last days. There's going to be a spirit of Antichrist at work in the world. There's going to be a tribulation. And during that tribulation period, listen, Israel is going to experience tribulation like she's never experienced. 
But even in the darkest days of the coming tribulation, God is not going to abandon Israel. But during the tribulation, Israel is going to come to faith in Jesus Christ as her true king. And that's why the prophet Zechariah says that in that day, there's going to be a fountain opened up for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from their sin and uncleanness. And God is going to gather all the nations against Jerusalem for battle on that day. It'll be a time of great distress. But then suddenly the prophet says God himself will go out and fight against those nations. Zechariah 14 says on that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. The Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west by a wide valley. Then the Lord my God will come and all his holy ones with him. And on that day there will be no light, cold, no frost. But it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord. And on that day, living waters will flow from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. What's that pointing to? It's pointing to the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. The kingdom that he's going to establish upon earth when he returns. And that's what Amos is given a glimpse of here in Amos chapter 9. And you'll notice he goes on to describe this glorious kingdom in which all peoples who survive from the name, listen to me, they're going to go up to Jerusalem and they're going to worship the Lord of hosts. That's what Zechariah describes. And what will that day look like? Well, look at the last couple of verses here in Amos chapter 9 because Amos has given a glimpse of it. Third, notice God's promise to his people. What's the promise? Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper, the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. And so what you see here is just this beautiful picture of, of, of a restored creation. You see a beautiful picture of a restored dominion, a dominion that Adam forfeited, a dominion that Israel lost through its disobedience. Here's a dominion that's going to be regained and restored by God's own king. And so Amos is describing a time of future restoration. Now here's the thing. I know a lot of believers when it comes to end times and the millennial kingdom and that kind of, there's a lot that's mysterious that we don't necessarily understand and we've got to have humility here. But I really believe with all of my heart that the best, most faithful treatment of prophetic passages uh, like this is to just simply let the plain sense of Scripture be its truest sense. Just let the Scripture say what the Scripture says. And some people say, well, all of these promises to Israel about a future kingdom, you know, about abundance, a plowman overtaking the reaper, a treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, mountains dripping with sweet wine, the hills that flow with it. Or passages like Isaiah 11 that describe the future kingdom as being a, a kingdom in which the wolf will lie down with the lamb. Or a little child playing by the hole of a cobra. A bear and an ox grazing side by side. People say, well, you really just need to spiritualize this and see that all of that ultimately is fulfilled spiritually in the church. To which I simply say, what are you talking about 
We can't even get the Baptists and the Pentecostals together, much less cows and bears eating together and children playing by the holes of snakes. No, what I believe this points to is a literal future fulfillment in which Jesus Christ is going to be ruler and king over all the earth, and he's going to regain and restore what Adam lost. And it's going to be an environment in which, that, that God originally intended from the beginning when Jesus is ruling and reigning over his kingdom. That's what Israel longed for. That's what God is speaking of here, and he's pointing us forward to here, a fulfillment when Jesus Christ comes and establishes his rule upon the earth. It'll involve replanted fields, verse 13. Restored fortunes, verse 14. Regathered future, verse 15. The very last verse of the book, God says to those of his people who look to him in faith, God says, I will plant them on their land and they will never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given to them. So it's the promise of hope. It's the promise of the future. When Jesus comes to establish his kingdom, all of creation will be liberated from the bondage of corruption. This is what the apostle Paul says is going to happen. Romans chapter 8, verse 21. Right now, all of creation is groaning. The ground has been cursed because of Adam's sin, but when Jesus comes again, all of that's going to be reversed. And the millennial kingdom, the millennial reign of Christ, it'll be a perfect environment and a perfect rule by a perfect king. And the good news is, if you know Jesus, you're going to be ruling and reigning with him. Now, let me just leave you with this, just by way of application, just a handful of reasons why this truth about the coming kingdom is so important and why it's so practical for your life right now, whether you realize it or not. The first reason is this. God's kingdom ought to be the primary motivation for every believer's life. Do you know that the coming kingdom, the truth of the kingdom, this ought to be the motive. This ought to, this ought to be what gets you up out of bed in the morning. This ought to be why you recognize that every ultimate detail of your life matters to the Lord. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. That's why he teaches us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it in heaven. At the top of our prayer list ought to be the establishment of the kingdom of God. Because if we get this right, everything else in our life will fall into place. Did you know that? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness in your life, and everything else will fall into place. But the moment you begin seeking something else other than his kingdom rule in your life, things aren't going to be right. Things aren't going to go right. The second thing that I want you to see here from this text is this, God's kingdom brings meaning into the ordinary, into the mundane activities of everyday life. It brings an awareness that there really is no activity or detail in life that's beyond God's comprehensive rule. The fact that Jesus is king and the fact that he's given me a kingdom mission means that my life has purpose. What is the church? The church is a vehicle for the kingdom. The church ought to be an embassy outpost for the kingdom. 
The church ought to provide people with a picture of what life in the kingdom, relationships in the kingdom, priorities of the kingdom, what it really looks like. So every day, you know, a lot of times people say, well, I just want to be radical for Jesus. And you see a lot of emphasis on being radical for Jesus. You know what I think is really radical? Being an ordinary, average person who lives your life and glorifies God in the details of your life. I think that's radical. It, go to be the best employee that you can be for the glory of God. Husbands loving their wives as Christ loves the church, all for the glory of God. Wives submitting to their husbands, all for the glory of God. Children obeying their parents, all for the glory of God. Being a man of integrity or a woman of integrity, uh, stewarding your resources, all for the glory of God. A kingdom mindset will realize that ultimately all of these details matter. And then one final thing that I want you to see would be this. God's kingdom is going to rectify every wrong and restore what sin has destroyed. You know, the emphasis throughout these nine chapters of Amos has been on justice. And that's something that we hear a lot of in our society, justice. Justice for the oppressed, justice for the abused, justice for those who've been hurt, for those who've been wounded. But let me tell you something, unless you know the King of kings and the Lord of lords and you bow at his feet, you really can't understand what true justice is. You've been hurt by someone in your past. You've been wounded by someone in your past. You know what the kingdom rule of Jesus Christ frees you to do? It frees you to forgive that person who's hurt you. It frees you to turn the other cheek and to so demonstrate the character of Christ but it also will liberate you under this understanding that ultimately God himself is going to right every wrong. Every injustice of man, God's going to deal with it. He's going to deal with it because he's the judge. So the kingdom means that every frustration with life in this present world, every fear, every doubt, ultimately it finds its answer in the coming kingdom. And folks, don't we long for that day as the men and women of God? I long for that day. Even so, come Lord Jesus. So Amos reminds us that we have a need for a king who's going to rescue us from our predicament, who's going to rule in righteousness whose kingdom will be forever. And folks, let me tell you, Jesus Christ is that king. Do you know him? Let's stand as we pray this morning. You know, our gaze must always go beyond the events that are happening around us to the very throne of God. Because only in the full assurance that he reigns as king will we be able to live triumphantly, even when we don't fully understand what he's doing. He's ruling, he's reigning, he's sovereign, and one of these days, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return. But you know, there's so many people that aren't ready for that day. They don't know him. Some of you have family members and loved ones that don't know him. You've got neighbors, people you live beside, people you work with that don't know him. But you know something? God wants to use you as a kingdom witness 
to bear witness to the fact that Jesus is king and he's coming and whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. God, we need a kingdom mindset as your people. It's easy for us, Lord, to get weary, get distracted. But Lord, may we seek first the kingdom rule of our God. May we seek to bring you glory and honor in all things, even the everyday, even the average, even the ordinary and mundane. And Lord, may we labor under the understanding that one day everything that's wrong is going to be made right by the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And Lord, thank you that there's a fountain of salvation opened up for any and everybody who would turn from their sin and place their faith and trust in Christ who died on the cross, who rose again from the dead, and who's coming again. It's in his name that we pray this morning. Amen.